I want to invite you to have a seat this morning. As you do, I want to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm not going to be speaking to the, the kiddos this morning, although I look forward to an opportunity in the future to, to be able to share and teach our Hubtown kids. But if you are part of Hubtown kids this morning, uh, you can head to my left, your right. There may be a, a couple of you. I'm not sure. If you do head that way, you're going to be learning a lesson this morning about God and his mercy. God and his mercy. I want to ask you a question. Maybe this has happened to you. Maybe something very similar or maybe something exactly like this. Guest after guest is showing up, and suddenly, all with neatly wrapped presents, they begin to gather and, and set these packages on the table. Each gift is overflowing off of the table. Excitement in your little heart is really more than you can bear. You begin to think, surely one of those gifts, at least one of them, maybe all of them, is for you. Maybe even envision yourself beginning to open those presents. You think about what they may hold, what you'll do with them, all the joy they'll bring. Only time will tell if any of them are for you. And time, in fact, did tell. You've healed since then. Because one after the other, the package was given to someone else. Someone else was honored. And sadly, it was the same person, time after time. It appears as if it is a day of their celebration. Time after time, present after present, the paper reveals another exciting treasure that you would have enjoyed, but it's not yours. A dearly wanted gift that somebody else will get to hold. It appears as if it was their birthday party and not yours. We've all experienced that, especially in our younger years. We want those Days We want those parties to be about us, and we want to enjoy those gifts. In general, the older that we get, it's easier for us to realize that life and every component is not about you. Some of us learn that way because of our humility and the Word of God gently and kindly teaching us. Others we learn through the school of hard knocks as every single time we reach for something, our hands are slapped and the desires that we have in our hearts where are not given to us. The Bible teaches that this life is not about you. Neither is that birthday party. The Bible teaches that, the, that, the, that life is about God. And so this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. We'll look at one verse. Now, don't get your hopes up. Uh, we'll be looking at several verses this morning, but I want to start here in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, helping us to see clearly that this life is not about you, it's not about your family, it's not about your, your children, it's not about this building, it's not even about this church. The Word of God clearly teaches us that life, and everything in it, is about God. The Apostle Paul, writing this masterpiece of the book of Romans to the church in Rome, has just spent quite a bit of time helping them to understand all the foundational principles and all the facets of their salvation that they're enjoying. It is indeed a masterpiece. And as a segue into the next section, he, he ends chapter 11 by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. The simplest way to understand this short little verse is by maybe rephrasing it. By the way, I appreciate that amen. Amen means what? Yes. It is true, yes. It also means if you're from the south, stir that soup. You can say that as well. A simple way to restate this would be, everything is his idea. Everything is accomplished by him, and everything is accomplished for his glory. Everything is his idea. Everything is accomplished by him, and everything happens for his own glory. That's speaking of God. Speaking of the Trinity. Where are you in this? Your own personal desires. Where is your children? Where is our church? It's not there. 
It's His good pleasure to accomplish things in us and for us. But ultimately, all things are from Him. They're through Him and they return to Him. They're for Him. So to Him be glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, that can be a tough pill to swallow. But again and again, the refrain of the Bible is Romans eleven thirty six: Life is not about you. It's about God. We live in a world where we really are afforded the opportunity to choose if we'll get in line with this truth, with this principle. Will our lives ultimately step, be in step with this passage? We have a lot of choices to make day to day, week to week, year to year. And I know many of us, as we look back over the last year, we would admit, I know I am there as a fallen, broken human being, even though I am a pastor, I have misplaced my affections, my reverence for God at the level that he requires and deserves was misplaced. Broken and fallen. And yet he deserves all of it. We find ourselves in the middle of a series in which we're being reminded of our mission as a church as we receive it from God. We talked a few weeks ago that we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. That needs to be printed somewhere. Somebody, well, not with a Sharpie marker, kids. I'm not talking about that. But somebody needs to get that written on the wall somewhere, right? We're a people helping people find and follow Jesus. And really out of that mission statement is our four values as a church. And one of them that we looked at last week was what? The word matters here. The word of God matters here. We preach from it. We sing from it. We pray from it. This is our guidebook. What does the Word of God have to say? Well, naturally, the second value that we'll talk about today flows right out of the first one. The Word matters here, and what does the Word say? The Word tells us that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you don't write anything else down, I want to encourage you to write that statement down. It can also be written on the wall, not with a Sharpie or a crayon, please. That would be precious as well. It's all about Jesus. And maybe you're asking, Pastor Josh, you just got done saying that it's all about God. I imagine that maybe is standing for the Father, but now you're saying it's all about Jesus. How do we get from God, the Father, to Jesus? Well, I want to remind you about a song. We're going to talk a lot about songs this morning. One of my favorite songs that I like to sing as a family and even one of the favorites of our, of our, of our youngest children is Holy, Holy Holy, Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, holy, holy. That's why they like it. It repeats a lot. Easy for them to remember. Merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. There's one God, and yet there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to take your Bibles now and turn from Romans chapter 11 all the way to Colossians. And I want you to see that Romans 11 says that it's all about God. Jesus, as the second person in the Trinity, Jesus, the fullness of God, is attributed, or several things are attributed to him there in the book of Colossians. So would you turn with me there Colossians chapter 1, we'll read verses 15 through 20. Before we jump into that passage, I want you to have a little bit more context about the book of Colossians before we jump in. It'd be helpful for you to see uh, that the highlight of this passage that we're looking at in the context, the, the other passages that are surrounded in. So at the time of the writing, the church at Colossae was facing a doctrinal battle. There were teachers that were influencing the church that didn't actually believe that Jesus was God. Instead, they believed that he was some sort of a human representative of God. And still others taught that Jesus was God, but as far as, uh, but, but as, far as his human form, it was only an illusion that he wasn't really a human. And so he was 100% God, but he wasn't actually a human. And that wasn't true either. The church contained the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
but it was being diluted by foreign doctrines. And it was becoming synchronistic, which basically means that they were blending what they were being taught by the apostles with some of these other teachings, maybe that they had inherited or some pragmatism, some just practical stuff that they'd picked up in their own life anecdotally. If we're blending the good with the bad and the result is all bad. I'm just trying to think of a good illustration for that. I think that's enough. When you blend good ingredients with bad ingredients, what do you have? It's all bad. It's all garbage. It wasn't that they didn't appreciate Jesus, the church at Colossae. No, they appreciated him, but they also appreciated other false doctrines as well. And as a result, there was a serious cloud that was blocking out the light of the glory of Jesus Christ there in that church. One commentator said, and I think it's, I think it's well said, speaking of this church, he said, they did not deny Christ, but they did dethrone him. They did not deny Christ, but they did dethrone him. And I want you to know that that's a serious concern for us today as well. To ascribe certain things to Jesus, to hold certain truths the Scriptures give us, to hold them dear in our hearts, and in some sense elevate Him, not deny Him entirely, but at the same time, by holding to other truths or untruths, at the same time, we dethrone Jesus. We would never think ourselves to be dismissing Jesus while we rewrite His gospel and put words in his mouth that he didn't actually say, or shift the the thrust of his movement of the gospel from one thing to another. We don't deny Christ, but we are in danger of dethroning him. That was not an uncommon approach to, to hold to more than one deity, to hold to more than one thought pattern. Not for the Greeks in the first century anyway. You may have heard what's called God the Pantheon. Pantheon, it's a monumental structure dedicated to the great gods of of their culture of that day. And if you think about the word pantheon, pan means what? All. And theon is God or gods. So they had this structure called the pantheon that was basically like, hey, this is all the gods. All the gods that we know, we're going to give some glory to all of them. That same pattern was beginning to creep into this church at Colossae. They had their own pantheon of sorts. And so for those in Colossae, Jesus was in some way responsible for repairing the broken relationship between God and man. But other than that, he's just an interesting figure in their religious history. And he's interesting among many others. So with that in mind, knowing what Paul is up against... As he writes this book, let's read Colossians chapter 1, this morning, verses 15 through 20. This is what the Word of God says. He, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Does that sound familiar? And he's before all things. He's before them all. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me, church? Father, it's, it's our prayer this morning that this passage in a greater way would seep into our hearts and take root. Father, would you allow our feeble, broken minds to truly see Jesus as you do this morning? Father, we'll know when it takes fruit. We'll know when it begins to to root into our hearts because our lives will change. Father, we'll look at him differently. Father, we'll read about him vigorously. Father, we'll sing about him more passionately. Father, we'll pray more confidently. Let us see 
Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Again, the big idea, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Things in creation, all things, exhaustively, it's all about him. All things created for him, through him, by him, for his glory. It's also true in the church. And these are the two main pieces that we'll work through this morning, that this passage is clearly teaching us that Jesus is sovereign over creation and he is sovereign over the church. Before we jump into that, I just want you to know not everybody here this morning likely believes that. Perhaps you want to even believe that, but you're struggling. I want you to know you're welcome here. We're so glad that you're here. And it's been my prayer this week, and not just mine alone, but many others as a result of hearing God's word preached, read, that you too would come to the same place that Paul was when he wrote this and that we are this morning as the church, Hagerstown Church. You might be struggling to believe. It's strange. Why would we dedicate our entire existence to a man that lived 2,000 years ago? Why is some historical figure like Abraham Lincoln George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr., why is he worthy, Jesus, worthy of so much more that we would correct our entire lives and, and set them on a course that would bring him the most glory? Again, it's my prayer this morning, it's my concern and desire that Jesus would become precious to you too and that you would see him just as the Father sees him. And so he's sovereign over creation, he's sovereign over the church. First, let's look at over-creation. Before we do that, I want to talk about sovereignty, over-creation. Let's talk about sovereignty. One theologian defines sovereignty like this. The sovereignty of God is the fact that he is the Lord over creation. As sovereign, he exercises his rule. And this rule is exercised through God's authority, listen, as king. He controls all things that's what it means to be sovereign. And his presence with his covenantal people and throughout all creation. The optimal word here, the, the main, the, the key word here is king. Jesus is king of creation. As we've already noted, it was, it was hit or miss for the Colossians as to whether Jesus was Lord over creation or not. Because for Jesus to be Lord over creation, he would have to be God. That makes perfect sense for us. It's logical. Paul had his work cut out for him when he enters into the city and begins to, through this letter, begin to defend, and display the deity of Jesus Christ or the godness of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Some readers today, they would look to this verse to prove that Jesus was not God, in fact, but rather that he was born, that he had a beginning, and that he was just a picture of God. What's ironic that the very thing that God is using to clarify for his church that others would use to distort. If you take a closer look at the language that's used here, it says that Jesus is the image of God. If you write in your Bible and I encourage you to do so. Would you underline is? Jesus is the image of God. Because I want you to contrast that with another passage in Scripture. If you're brave enough to do so, flip back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 likely won't be on the screen. I didn't put it in my notes for them. But Genesis chapter 1, particularly verse 27, contrasts greatly We'll start back in verse 26, Genesis 1, 26 and following. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do you notice anything different from our passage in Colossians chapter 1 to our passage in Genesis chapter 1? It says of Jesus that he is 
that he is the image of God. And what does it say of Adam and Eve and us? It says that they were created in the image of God. Two totally different things. Without a doubt, Paul is contrasting these two together. And is it ever helpful for us and for the first century church there in Colossae? Adam had a beginning while Jesus did not. Adam is in the image of God while Jesus, listen, is the image of God. Some would still look at this passage and claim that the word image speaks of Jesus as being an icon, a representation, a symbol, not the actual thing. But it's helpful to to look at this statement under this light. The Bible says that no man can see the Father, yet Jesus tells his disciples what? If you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. Is he an icon? Is he a symbol? Is he a representation? Or is he God having taken on flesh? God the Father is a spirit He's invisible, but Jesus has become what? He's become visible. He's taken on this human nature, added that to his divine nature. In other words, Jesus is the visible portion of the Godhead. Historically, God was opposed, you might remember, to images or idols being made in his likeness. Why? There's many reasons, but one is this. You could never do him justice. How will you ever take something that has been fashioned with clay, with human hands, and it be a likeness, an accurate representation of God who is a spirit? It would be impossible for us. It would always fall flat. It would always lead us astray. And yet Jesus, not made with human hands, adds to himself a human nature and is The image of God. Not made with clay, not made with human hands. Jesus said of him in verse 19 that he is the fullness of God. The fullness of God was pleased in him to dwell. And so why do we say it's all about Jesus? Well, first, right underneath of that is like, why? Because he's God. Romans 11, 36, all things for him all glory to him to God and Jesus is in fact God but the skeptics may say the language that follows it seems a little sloppy it says that he is the firstborn simply put the language that undergirds firstborn is that he is the premier one he is of primary importance He deserves the highest place of honor. As an aside, I was speaking with somebody this morning. They said they were the firstborn and they had another child, another sibling below them and another even yet below them. And he said the greatest struggle in their family dynamic was what was the middle child usurping the authority of the eldest, of the firstborn. And we might say, well, that's silly. But it's not silly. If you are, even if you're the seventh child, the, the, the eighth and ninth better listen. They better get in line. Why? Because there is a preeminence. There's an importance that goes. There's a pecking order. And while Jesus was never, has always existed, this is not speaking of him as coming into existence as a person. It's speaking of his authority. It's speaking of his honor. It's speaking of his importance. Did you know that when the creation account unfolds, we read it just a moment ago, Did you recognize that Jesus is present there in creation? Even in Genesis 1, we read verse 26. It said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is the Trinity in community, in conversation together, saying, We Three persons, one God. We will make man in our image. Who's the our? Who's part of that plural group? God the Father from eternity past. God the Son from eternity past. And God the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus there, present in creation. Also, we see in John 1, we, we understand that Jesus is actually the active agent in the creation of the world. I think it's worth turning to that poetic passage as well. I told you, I warned you, we'd be dancing all over the place. We're Baptists. We can dance a little bit when we're dancing with the word, right? Is that true? Can I get an amen? John chapter 1. The apostle says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're there, skip down to verse 9. Just listen. Verse 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world then, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Word is without a doubt a reference to Jesus. And Paul and John, along with all of creation in unison this morning, are proclaiming this truth to us, that Jesus is God. And in addition to that, Jesus has made all things. Colossians says that clearly for us. We read it a moment ago, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Remember, it sounds a lot like Romans chapter 11, verse 36. From him, through him, to him. Are you getting a sense, a stronger sense as it applies and relates to you individually, to us as a church does your life reflect these truths? The truths of Romans 11, Romans 11, and these subsequent passages that we've taken a look at this morning. Does your life with an accuracy and a precision declare the same thing, that everything is all about Jesus, the creator, the one who gives you life right now, allows your atoms to stay connected, Forming molecules that comprise your body that cause your heart to beat and the heart of the loved one next to you. That all of that, all of this is for Jesus. Without a doubt, there's a little bit of guilt that we begin to sense and feel as we think about the way that the Bible talks about Jesus and his preeminence in all of creation. We begin to wonder, why are you not in line with this? Why are these areas in your life not reflecting Jesus the same way the Word of God does? This brings us to an interesting point. That Jesus is sovereign over creation because he's the creator, but we have sinned against him. Every area of our lives, we've fallen short in our own weakness or in our rebellion. We've not reflected this. We've not lived in light of his sovereignty, in light of King Jesus. We read the Gospels and they say that Jesus, creator of the heavens and the earth, he tells a storm to be still. And all of the things that are tied up in this phenomenon of a storm, they cease in obedience to him. He tells a crippled man to walk. He tells dead people to be raised and to, to breathe again, and they obey him. The elements on every level obey him, and yet we, as his creatures, disobey him, and we rebel against him. None of us are perfect. We've all fallen not lived in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord of creation, not entirely. And really, that's a great place to segue into the second idea, that Jesus is Lord of the church. Because the church is a group of people. It's a, it's a called out group of people from creation, that, from the fallen creation that God calls and speaks life into. And they raise from the dead as well. And they come out from the world in a sense. And physically, they gather on Sundays. And what do they do? They make much of the one who has given them life. 
And that's why Jesus is the Lord of the church. That's why, number two, Jesus is sovereign in the church. If you're still with me in Colossians chapter 1, let's look at verses 18, 19, and 20. Jesus is sovereign in the church. What does it say? And he is the head, the body, the church. It's a vivid metaphor for us. Why is that so vivid? Why is that so potent of a metaphor? What relationship does your head have to your body? Well, it's not too difficult for us to consider. Anybody that's ever been in a crash or somebody's ever thrown a a mason jar of mama's uh, pickles, you know that you're instinctively, your arms come up. They don't naturally go down to cover your toe or your knee or one hand covering the other. Instinctively, our arms cover our head. Why? Vitally important. It's part of our instincts. Jesus is the head of the church. Why is Jesus the head of the church? Paul continues to develop this idea of Jesus being the head in Ephesians chapter 5 where he talks about the relationship of wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives. And he says, husbands, you're the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He goes on to say that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So the head cares for the body while the body honors the head. From the head from Jesus over the church, we receive protection. We see in this passage, Ephesians 5, we, we also see that we receive purity, sanctification from the head. But back in Colossians, he goes on to say he's not just the head, but he is the beginning. He's the beginning of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? Well, many people in the time of the apostles and even of Jesus were raised from the, from the grave to walk again. And so how in the world could it say that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? Here's how. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and yet he died again. But Lazarus, our brother, will rise yet another time, never to die again, just as Jesus has raised never to die again. He's the firstborn from the dead. And because of that, everything is, he is preeminent in all things. Verse 19 goes on, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The very fullness of God present amongst his people again. Verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We'll park here for just a moment. A sentence to, to, to reconcile all things to himself, that phrase. Why is it that all things would need to be reconciled to Jesus as if, as if he's the one with whom the offenses or against the, whom the offenses were committed? Why is that said in such a way? Here's why. Because our sins are offenses against him. If Jesus is the creator of all, that would mean that the original sin and every other subsequent sin of our ancestors and of you, of all of us, of me, gathered here this morning, that all of them are not just against God the Father, God the Spirit, but against God the Son as well. Many times we think incorrectly of our sin against God, and we, we think of salvation in this way, that, that we've sinned against the Father, and, the, and now the Father's wrath is upon us, and Jesus is like, you know what, I'm not that mad, and it's not that big of a deal, and so I'll just... Maybe, can I appease your wrath, Father? Can I make this whole thing just go away? It's not a big deal. I don't mind to die for him. It's heresy. It's not what's taking place. Your sins are not only an affront to God the Father, they are an affront to Jesus the Son. This is why he has come to reconcile all things to himself, to make right reconcile, to reconnect to bring back together into harmony, to make peace one with the other. Jesus has done that. He's made peace between you and him, not just between you and the Father. In case you don't feel the weight of this, look again at verse 20. It says, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
You've sinned against the Father, but you've sinned against the Son. And it was the Son's very blood shed on that cruel cross, Christian, that affords you the peace that you don't deserve, but you'd so desperately need. Let that sink in a moment. That rests on your shoulders. You owed a debt you could not pay, and Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. And that debt was against him. It was to him. Why do we say it's all about Jesus? Because when it comes to salvation, what have we brought to the table? Nothing but our sin against him and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so there's no glory for us. When we come to this party that is life, we don't say, what do we get out of this? When do we get celebrated? When, when do we receive our glory? But we see our own sinfulness and we see the, the kindness of God the Father and the mercy of God the Son. We don't keep any glory for ourselves, but we give it back to him. Just like the Bible says we will as Christians receive crowns. And what will we do with those crowns? No, no, no. These are not for us. And we'll cast them at the foot of who? We'll cast them at the foot of King Jesus. There's nothing for us to keep except for the mercy. There's nothing for us to celebrate in ourselves but the gospel that we hold in Christ. You see, Jesus is our creator. We're accountable to him. But we've sinned and we deserve his wrath. But instead of death, he offers us life. Said concisely, we have been created by him. We rebelled against him. We, as his church, are redeemed through him. And we will be restored to him. The Bible teaches us that it's all about Jesus. Everything. He's preeminent in all and every action should flow out of his agenda. Our lives should be poured out for his glory. But what does it mean to us here at Hagerstown Church? We say this is one of our values. We've, we've spent the last 36 minutes saying this is our value, that it's all about Jesus. So what will that actually look like moving forward, moving through 2022 and for the next, Lord willing, 100 years? What will it look like for us to be all about Jesus? Well, I can say for one thing, it means we're going to talk about Jesus a lot. I hope that when you come here for the first time or when you tune in for just a few moments that you see that this church is not about your best life now. This life is not about, this, this sermon and their gathering is not about how to make your life easier While we will experience a greater amount of joy, I pray that you're seeing as you tune in or as you sit down for the first time that you see that this place is about Jesus. It's about his glory. And I pray that our church over the next 100 years will reflect this truth, that everything is for Jesus. Furthermore, we're going to preach his message. We're going to preach his word. It's been said here for a while to preach God's word as it is to people as they are. And I love that. And we're not going to change that. We're going to preach Jesus' message every Sunday. We're going to lift him up. We're going to make much of Jesus. Jesus in this place for the next 100 years will be the hero. We will appoint pastors who make much of Jesus in their strength and in their weaknesses. Jesus will be the hero behind this pulpit he will be our salvation. Something that I inherited, perhaps you've stepped behind this holy desk and you've seen this printed here and it won't be removed anytime soon. Step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. This is a quote from Spurgeon. Step aside, sir. We're gonna appoint pastors. Hagerstown Church, it's your responsibility to, to only sit under the teaching of those who make Jesus the hero and not themselves. We appoint new pastors. As I'm buried, hopefully, and I hope I'm here till I die, and you appoint another to lead the ministry here under King Jesus, I pray that he remains the hero and not another. We'll lift Jesus up. We'll continue to establish further gospel ministry that lasts for decades and even another century here in Hagerstown. It means we're going to preach about the gospel a lot. 
not self-help. It means we're going to celebrate his rule in this world as we submit to his leading. It means that individuals are going to help people find and follow Jesus and not life group leaders and D group leaders and pastors and teachers. It means we're going to plant churches that plant churches in the surrounding area and beyond. It means we're going to travel around the world. We're going to send our resources out to make Jesus famous in places like India, Haiti, Thailand, Malaysia, and wherever else the Lord leads. Those are some of our collective aspirations. That's what we desire. But what should we be doing individually? I hope you regularly flex between those two places. As we sing songs, we sing songs about in Christ alone, my hope is found. I hope you also in your mind begin to think, and I don't think Brett would be too frustrated with you if you say, in Christ alone, our hope is found. So we can flex between this collective and individual. We talked a little bit about our collective aspirations, but what about your individual aspirations or individual steps? I'm going to give you four things as we come to a close this morning. What would it look like for you and your life to really be all about Jesus? Well, four practical steps that you can take. One is this, read about Jesus. Read about Jesus. This is a great time to start a new Bible reading plan. Whether you're going to read the Bible twice in a year, just read the New Testament, or maybe you're going to spend the entire year just focusing on Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Either way, read about Jesus Instead of thinking about the Jesus that you would like to follow, read about the Jesus that has called you to follow him. Such a dangerous position to be in here. We all want to follow Jesus, but let Jesus describe himself. And then follow that Jesus. You've got to read about him. You've got to read about him. Read in community. Read on your own. Read in life groups. Read early in the morning. Read about Jesus. Make time for it. Really flowing out of reading about Jesus is thinking about Jesus. Read about the Jesus, or think about the Jesus that you read about. That's point number two. Think about this. I was able to think even this week about Jesus because I read about him in Matthew chapter six. He says this, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here's something that's so beautiful about this teaching of Jesus that I was reading and thinking about this week. We can spend our whole lives amassing all sorts of trinkets and treasures. And yet they're always in danger of being destroyed by moth or rust or being taken out of our hands, maybe even our cold hands, by a thief. But you know what treasure is never able to be taken from you? The treasure that is laid up in heaven. And who is in heaven? Not what is in heaven. Who is in heaven? Brothers and sisters, treasure Christ. Think about him after you've read about him. And in your heart, treasure them. Just as Mary, the mother of Jesus, pondered and treasured all of these things about her Lord and her son in her heart. Do the same. You'll be shocked at how much it will change you as you read about Jesus and you think about Jesus. Paul, thinking about Jesus, was led to pen this by the, literally by the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and just thinking about him. Paul goes on to say, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I think of them, I count them as rubbish and trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that that depends on faith. He goes on to say, oh, that I may know him. As I read about him, as I think about him, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, our dear brother, read about Jesus the Lord and he thought long and hard about Jesus the Lord and it led him to do the third point and that's it led him to talk about Jesus. I was reminded this week as I read a book, it's a helpful book, Character Matters by Aaron Menikoff. 
He challenged the reader, myself, to surround yourself with people who talk a lot about Jesus. We as a church, we say, hey, it's all about Jesus, and then what do we do? Well, if, we don't be, if we're not intentional, we don't spend our time truly reading about Jesus and thinking about Jesus and thereby, therefore talking about Jesus, it won't truly be about Jesus at all. And I don't mean in some fake or juking kind of a way, always trying to make Jesus the, the butt of the joke or bring him in in some way. If it doesn't fit or is irrelevant. But be a person that encourages others to think about Jesus by talking about Jesus, by asking about his influence in their life. And more than that, sharing with them his work, his influence in your own life. They say you, you can't uh, choose your, uh, you know, your, uh, your, your family, but you can choose your friends. You can choose who you're going to be hanging out with. You can choose who's going to influence you the most. And if you can, allow yourself to be surrounded by people who celebrate and surrender to Jesus. And by the way, in the church that you choose, one of the, the hardest parts about being a pastor is over the last three years, I've come, become very close with brothers and sisters who then leave and go to another church. Maybe they move around the world. Some of you are even thinking right now, oh, I'm just about to tell them. You better not. But if you do leave, listen, you better find a church that talks about Jesus. And you say, well, Pastor Josh, all churches talk about Jesus. Sadly, they do not, and many not near enough. Choose a church, if you ever find yourself church shopping, choose a church that talks about Jesus. Choose a life group that talks about Jesus. Choose a D group that talks about Jesus. Choose a, a family. Just kidding. But maybe you're leading in those places. Are you somebody who talks about Jesus? Well, if you've been somebody that's read about him, if you've been somebody that meditates on him, it's awfully easy to talk about Jesus. And then the last point, as you think about the theology, which is Christology, that's what we're talking about today. The study of ology, Christ. As you think about Christology or good theology, it will naturally lead us to what's called doxology, which is praise. That's the fourth, fourth point I want to bring to your attention. Talk about Jesus, yes, but sing about Jesus. You say, you're treating us like we're kindergartners. Yes, we need these elementary principles because we need to do them better. It's all about Jesus. We've got to work toward that end. And so we study the theology of Christ and then we praise him, the person of Christ. And so sing about Jesus. It's something that we do every week. Maybe you've not thought, thought long and hard about that. Maybe you've not really realized that the church gathers together to praise Jesus. If you think about the songs that we've sung this morning, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. What a wonderful, wonderful song to sing. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sang about it. We, we testified one to the other to guests here with us this morning. We declared to them, maybe for the first time, nothing can wash away your sins except for the blood of Jesus. And we praised him as we proclaimed the gospel. We went on to sing, in Christ alone. Woo! It's a good thing the roof is so tall. We, we were in danger of raising the roof. Before I stood to, to preach, we sang about the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. I thought of another song. I was addressing this morning those who maybe don't really understand the supremacy of the authority, the, the sovereignty of Jesus in the church, the sovereignty of Jesus in creation. And I thought maybe I'd try to meet you where you are through a song that I've read about, thought about, prayed about, and now I'm going to sing about. Oh, soul. Are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Would you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we try to land the plane this morning, I want to just think about that song. We're not going to sing that one. We're going to sing a, another beautiful song here in just a moment. But I want you to think about that song. 
really encapsulates the gospel. Turning your eyes upon Jesus, looking full in his wonderful face. And as you do that, the things of earth begin to go, grow strangely dim. They don't have the same allure that they used to. Bottle caps aren't as fun when you've stared into the face of Christ, the creator, sustainer of this world, creator, sustainer of the church. I want you to know, elder brother and sister, this congregation needs to see you sing that song, not just on Sunday morning, but with your life. I need to see that. And I've seen it. I need to keep seeing it. Young Christian, we, your older siblings, and yes, I guess I am in the older group, am I not? A little bit. We need to see you, younger sibling, long to sing this song with your life. Fight to sing this song with your life. To look on the face of Jesus and everything else become dim. And to each of us, Hagerstown Church, God the Father, he's calling us to sing this song so that the world that's looking in through this stained glass, they wouldn't just see the gospel displayed through these window panes, but they would see the gospel displayed on our faces as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's sing these songs, not just with our mouths, but let's sing them with our lives as well. Revelation makes it clear to us that all throughout eternity, it will be filled with the songs of the redeemed offered to the creator and sustainer, Jesus Christ. So that's what we've been doing for the last 140-some years here in Hagerstown. That's what we'll continue to do for the next 140 years, making much of the one who has created us and making much of the one who has redeemed us and called us into his church. And In his name, let's pray to him. Father, we desire that all things be about Jesus. We know that they are. Would our lives display that this morning? Holy Spirit, would you let us treasure Christ above all else? Would you allow us to behold the face of Christ and thereby see the fullness of God? Father, would the things of this earth grow strangely dim? Father, we know it's all about Jesus. We pray that Christ would be in the heart of every person who thinks of us. We pray that Christ would be in the mouth of everyone who speaks of this church. Father, we pray that Christ would be in every eye that sees the people of this church. Father, we pray that Christ would be in every ear that hears us speak. This is our prayer that Jesus, as we treasure you, as we lift you up, that all would be brought to you. We ask that these things be done in your name and for your glory. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and sing. I said a moment ago that good theology leads to doxology. Good study of God's word, good study of truth leads to good worship. And so would you stand and sing about Jesus who, everything's about him. Would you sing joyfully as a church together? Would you sing not just to Christ, but so that your brother and sister, older and younger, can hear?